This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we conclude our journey through Isaiah by looking at his prophetic visions for the future and how hope changes the substance of our conversations, desires, and experiences. Yeah, I think this will probably end up being the last episode of this series. There's a chance, Brent, as we record this, there might be... We haven't heard from Josh on this series. We might sneak in an episode or two, but chances are good this is it. So... We reserve the right. And while we have yet to enjoy the uh, pleasures of Reed and L pontificating about whatever they might be talking about, there is an episode that's coming before this that we have yet to record. So, so I don't even know what they said at this point. We don't, I'm sure it was awesome. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah, they wouldn't. They wouldn't do that to me. They wouldn't set up traps for me to walk into. So, no way. But yeah, it was, it's it's good to hear all their voices. Um, we do have Josh. He'll show up and. Reed series. Reed's coming up next. Reed's got a series on the Psalms, so that's where we're headed. We probably got an interview in the middle there, um, but yeah, we got some good stuff. Good stuff coming. I'm looking forward to hearing from from Reed, and then L's got a series, and then Josh has got a series, uh, and now we've got a new rhythm, Brent. I feel like we've got a rhythm for our seasons, our sessions. I feel like we're generally going to have a session flow where each one of us is bringing something to the table. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I think we're going to jump in here. This we we titled this. This is this is how Isaiah ends ends his prophecy. This is how the book of Isaiah it, it culminates. It's not going to be we're going to see today. It's not all just amazing goodness and nothing but lion lying down with the lamb. That's definitely in there. That's a real passage, but it's not just that. Um there's some challenges, there's some warnings, there's some sin. Uh there's some judgment even in this section, but but really, the conversation continues to evolve. Um, we call this episode the fruit of faithfulness. Um, so we're going to start here in 56, where we left off, and we get, a, we get to hear Isaiah talk about what is this new world of hope? There's this new world of hope. What is hope? You've been in exile. You're, you're probably coming somewhat, maybe, we'll, we'll talk about this at some point today. Like Maybe you're sitting in exile. Maybe you're, you're kind of done. Maybe you can see the new horizon of a new tomorrow. Um, but uh, but you now, like, everything continues to hope is starting to be realized, experienced in some new ways. So what does hope do to the world in God's eyes? So that's what we're going to hear. So you can jump into Isaiah 56. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. Do you hear any themes in there, Brent, that feel like they... You know, they're very Bema-esque, but beyond that, and more importantly, like there are themes we've seen throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Anything kind of jump out there at you as you read that? Justice, righteousness, right. Sabbath. Yeah. Okay. Foreigners. Okay. Yeah. Yep. 
Um, yeah, outsiders, mumsers, a eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree, the foreigner, the Lord will surely exclude, don't let him say that the Lord's going to exclude. Like, these are the themes. We've been, what does hope build? What is the new world of hope? The new world of hope is the world that God has always wanted to build from the beginning. The new world of hope really isn't all that new, new. It's just a renewed, it is a renewed vision of everything that God wanted to do from the days of the garden, from the opening chapter of the scriptures. It's a thing he called his people to when he put them at the crossroads of the earth and asked them to live in the tension of Shephela. It's the same. It's it's all the stuff that we looked at years ago in session one and session two. Um, the, the new world of hope is is really not anything new and novel. It's it's really um it's really something rooted in 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 what always has been God's intention. But uh on the idea of a dry tree we talked about in episode one thirty seven. You got it. Yep, absolutely. One of my favorite references. It's gonna keep going here too. It's gonna keep talking about eunuchs because that came up in our discussion in the book of Acts about the Ethiopian eunuchs. So absolutely. But um go ahead and keep on keeping on here. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord, hang on to that for later. Okay. The Sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. A little bit strange way to phrase that, NIV. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we have this, so, so again, this world, this new hope, this new world of hope is a world, just notice the movement, like the eunuchs aren't excused. I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And let us just remember that Torah, the books of Moses at the beginning of the Hebrew scriptures, very clearly in Deuteronomy, I think it's the first few verses of Deuteronomy 29. I could be wrong, but my memory is telling me it's Deuteronomy 29. Nope, it could be 23. It could be Deuteronomy 23. My memory is telling me I'm wrong. My memory is arguing with me right now. Tell me, Brent, which one is it? Uh, Deuteronomy 23 starts with exclusion from the assembly. Okay, there you go. So Deuteronomy 23 and the Torah very, very clearly articulated who couldn't join that temple assembly. Doesn't mean that they were excluded from the community of God's people. Doesn't mean that they were, they may have been treated with a stigma. But it's not necessarily that was God's intention, but there was, and now by the time we get to Isaiah, so that was the books of Moses, that was Torah. But now that God's people have continued to grow, continued to understand what God's up to, continued to live in that covenant, now Isaiah's vision says, well, whatever, whatever is going on with Deuteronomy, whatever's going on in the temple, like th- there will be a place that there's not going to be any. So to, what was the subtitle in Deuteronomy? I'm not sure this is God approved. Mo- Moses may not approve, but the subtitle in Deuteronomy 23 was what? Exclusion from the assembly. <laughs> Which I can't argue with like necessarily accuracy of that. But Isaiah's vision is inclusion in God's in God's mission, in God's covenant, in God's people. 
I don't know if Isaiah says they, they're welcome in that physical temple, but the vision he talks about here, they certainly are. They are given within my temple and its walls, a memorial. There is a movement that Isaiah sees. There is a, and I'll come back to this a little bit more later, but, but there is a place for these folks to belong. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, who minister to him, those who trust my story. Like this isn't a transaction about Sabbath. End of verse six, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my whole. That's not a transaction. It's not saying if you keep my behaviorally, keep my Sabbath, then you get something from God. It's a, it's a larger, more poetic statement about for those that trust my story, for those that hold to the truth of my grace and my love, they will find the fulfillment of what they're looking for. That is Isaiah's prophetic vision. Did you did you have something there? You said something about sovereign Lord and hold on, or is that coming up later? Oh, yeah, that'll be at the end. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Just 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 hang on to that little. Oh, that okay. little... oh I see. <laughs> I see what you're doing. Okay. All right, let's keep moving. We got we got some more because because that was all beautiful. Like Isaiah 56, one through eight. Brent, that's like that's glorious. Like those first eight verses. That's pretty good stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Beautiful well, picture. Well, the next few verses uh, transition to a new little section. <laughs> or maybe it's a continuation of the same, but it's not all smooth sailing. It's not going to be Isaiah 56, 1 through 8 for the next 10 chapters. Because um, that's not how life works. And that's not how God's people, you and I included, we're not known for responding with like perfect, obedient, faithful trust. So uh, so there's God's got some things to to say. Come, all you beasts of the field. Come and devour, all you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. Come, each one cries. Let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer. And tomorrow will be like today or even far better. All right, so we've got this. Uh, this is Israel's watchmen, so this isn't outsiders. This isn't pagan other nations. This is Israel's watchmen are blind. They lack knowledge. All of that is is leveled to. So we've got this beautiful vision of hope, and yet the one thing that's going to stand in our way of this realization of this hope and this world, this new world that Isaiah envisions. Does watchmen rever- refer to a specific group of people, or is that just a general... Like term for, I don't know. Well, I mean, you would have people that are actually watchmen. I would assume it's more of a poetic, prophetic reference to Israel's leaders. Like these are the people that are supposed to be, it, it could even be a reference to the prophets. I don't have necessarily any footnotes in front of me. I don't have Alter in front of me. I would love to know if Alter has a reference to what those watchmen could or should be. I don't know if the NET says anything, but any yeah, NET says probably spiritual leaders, most likely prophets and priests responsible for giving the people moral direction. Man, I was just saying that, Brent. It's like we're yes. it's like we're just <laughs> together of one mind. Um but yeah, absolutely. I I would think they're leaders on some, whether it's actual prophets, because they're supposed to be the watchmen for Israel, whether it's just spiritual leaders, because that's, you know, but yeah, that's what I would assume is a more poetic reference there. But yeah. And this just keeps going. I think I, I think I ignore the big 57 that shows up in your Bible. Just ignore that. And I, I feel like the thing just keeps on moving in a similar course. The righteous perish and no one takes it to heart. 
the devout are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. But you, come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Who are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. Okay, so that, I mean, that's very directly referencing uh, idolatry and not just in a broad, but there are very specific references to very specific idolatries, um, Babylonian, like there's all kinds of syncretism going on there. This shows up all throughout Jeremiah. Like there's some real historical credence to what's being said here, but we'll be our own worst enemy. We will be the people that get in the way of the thing that got even after exile, even after we get the opportunity to come back home. I've wondered if perhaps this is Isaiah. We talked about the prophetic table at the very, very end of session two, the the last content episode that we had. I wonder if this is Isaiah making his case. Um, Isaiah had a particular perspective and he says, there's some of you that are just going to stay here in Persia, not because you have the mission of God on your mind, because you, you, frankly, you like Persia, you like Babylon, you like this world, you like everything that this gives you. And I wonder if that's his voice condemning this, um, this syncretism and this apathy and this, uh, this compromise. And that's part of what Isaiah is speaking to, but, but that's not the end of the story either, because, Again, these themes that we've heard continue to be the themes. They always will be the themes. They continue to be the themes today. Uh, my notes, in my notes, I have the phrase, God is willing to forgive and heal. So even though we are our own worst enemies, and, and if you're paying attention to the story, you're like, oh man, again, like after all of this, after all that exile, again, we're going to do this again. We're going to be our own worst enemies. Yeah. But, but God says, that doesn't stop me from forgiving. That doesn't stop me. It doesn't get in my way. Like if you want to come, so go and pick up in verse 14 here of this chapter, Brent. I have one more question. Okay. About verse five, the, uh, you burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. Is spreading tree, is that supposed to be an acacia or is that something more general or something else entirely? Yeah. I don't think an acacia in, in specific. I'd have to see if, um, if Noga Harovini had any notes on that particular reference, but that's going to be the, the idol trees. So the pagan nations would often take great spreading trees, very mature trees, large trees, any tree that made was an opportunity for you to, um, uh, it'd be a place of worship. It'd be a place of shrine prostitution. We often get a reference in the old Testament of the Asherah poles being next to or underneath, and whether that's literal or whether that's just a, a picture or an image, those ideas go together. That those, And that's why I think it's connected to lust. You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. That's that sexual immorality, that sexual idolatry, and the shrine prostitution that they are. Uh, that Jeremiah, not just Isaiah, Jeremiah will reference the exact same thing, Jeremiah 17 being the chapter that's coming to my mind right now. Um, where Jeremiah says something very, very similar. Um, so yeah, that's that's the idea of the spreading tree there. I don't, I don't know if there's any specific tree, but the pagans would use those as opportunities to um, spread their worldview. I even think of like the Chosen. I think there's a Chosen episode, not necessarily that he's at a tree. I think there is a tree in the background. But you remember that one episode in the Chosen season three where there's a pagan priest like 
sacrificing oh, yeah. a bird and doing the whole omen thing like that. That's kind of the the image and the picture that you get there. Yeah. Okay. Well, on to God's forgiveness then. <laughs> We're going to need it. <laughs> and it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger, yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. All right. So God says, I'll be quick to forgive. Like if you want to turn from these ways, like if you want to come back, if you want to chuva. We would say in session two, uh, God says, I have seen their ways, but I will, I, I, I will heal them. Like I will guide them. I'll restore, I will, I will restore comfort to Israel's, Israel's mourners. Um, God, God says, I've got, I've got forgiveness if you want it. You, you, you gotta want it. Like you gotta be a part. And so let's, and so then this is going to move into Isaiah 58, one of those famous chapters where Isaiah is going to talk about, okay, so what is the substance? What is the substance of this obedience? This obedience is the foundation, the obedience of his people is the foundation upon which God's going to build. I don't know if I like that statement. That feels very unprotestant e of me to say on the foundation of the obedience of God's people. <laughs> we could probably say it's the foundation of his love and his grace and his mercy, um, trusting the story, the truth of the Sabbath. But it is going to be in partnership with God's people. That partnership is going to be the foundation upon which God's going to build this new world of hope. And so in Isaiah 58, we actually see the substance. What is the substance of this obedience? What is the substance of this new world of hope? And so that's where we turn our attention to next. And I'll just point out before I read the, you know, at the end of the last chapter, there, quote, there is no peace, says my God for the wicked. And then it continues that quotation into 58. Okay. Okay, great. I'd be okay with that. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, it just another, another reason to um, be careful about the chapter breaks. And, yeah, and absolutely. What, what these, the subtitle breaks and everything else. Totally. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Okay, so maybe there is a hint, um, and this might be an, an extrapolation, this might be a, a, an assumption, maybe we can't make this, but maybe there is a hint here in these first few verses that like the reason... God's people have given themselves to idolatry is because they're not seeing the hand of God at work. Like they, they want, according to these first few verses here in 58, they want to know, they seem eager to know my ways. Like, it's not that they're ignoring God. It's not that they don't want to, you know, hear his promises or hear what he has to say, 
But it seems like maybe the justification for their behavior has been, we're, we're learning, we're fasting, but we don't see you moving. We, you're not coming. And I think a lot of us can resonate with that. Not that there's not some very spiritual reflection to make on whether or not that's the way it's supposed to work. But I think my point is we can relate to, man, I have, I'm sure trying, I'm sure trying to follow God. I'm sure trying to, and, and I don't see him at work. And I think the temptation is to then give ourselves to the things that do seem to work, or at least the things that do seem to satiate my, uh, my, my lusts and my, um, my, my desires, my appetites to refer to the sarks. And, and maybe that, maybe we're getting some insight into why they've gotten into the mess that they're in. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You can't, <laughs> sorry, I just read that in a Boston accent in my mind. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Okay, so so God responds to this and says, okay, so you seem eager to know my ways. You are fasting, and yet you you are not participating in the kind of shalom-oriented world that I've invited. On the day, so on the day that you fast, so you are fasting, but on that same day, you do you follow your own desires, you exploit your workers. Your fasting ends with quarreling and strife. You're you're abusing other people. You you cannot fast like that and expect, like just because you're fasting, just because you're going through the motions, just because you have this inward desire to to maybe learn or gain understanding. And I hope we're I hope many of us are hearing how relevant this is for our spiritual posture and alignment today. You can't just go through the motions and expect that to be like uh, that. What what tugs at the heart of God? What He really longs to see is justice. Is the way that you treat other people? It's almost like all the scriptures hang on the idea of love, Brent. It's almost it's almost like like everything hangs on love God and love other people. It's almost like it. That's what it is. <laughs> And like a call to self-examine, like, oh, is is that what you call love? Right, <laughs> like, right. We got to be careful just throwing that word around because we all have our own ideas of what might be loving. Yep. And it, would God actually find it acceptable? Right. to be, be reflective about that. Well, good news. God ain't done talking yet here in chapter 58. He's got some more, in case we need it to be more practical, he's got some uh, practical content, substance here for us. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Mind right into that rut, Marty. Yep. <laughs> then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, 
and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Ugh, like one of, just one of our favorite passages, at least one of my favorite passages in the Hebrew scriptures, um, the poetry, the language, uh, so good. And it's the substance of what God's looking for. I, this is the fasting that I have chosen. Like, this is what I want. Like, I'm fine with your fast, but if your fast isn't built on this, if your fast isn't leading you to more of this, um, and let's just make sure that we call this biblical justice, Brent, we'll call this biblical justice. Um, I've been informed numerous times that I cannot say the word social justice. That is not okay. That is a political buzzword. Uh, so we are not talking about social justice here at all. We are talking about biblical justice because we are very directly and literally reading the words of the Bible. Is that correct, Brent? Yes. Although I've actually also heard people complain about uh, using the word biblical as like oh, a cudgel. No. Oh, well, that's true too. <laughs> well, whatever we need to say, this is justice as described by the Bible. Let's put it this way. This is this is justice described by the Bible. And it, it is described as setting the oppressed free, sharing food with the hungry, uh, providing the poor wanderer with shelter, um, uh, clothing the naked, um, righteousness, uh, when we do these things, God will actually show, like not show up. He'll say, here I am. Like when we do these things, we're going to find the presence of God being faithful to that work. When we do away with the yoke of oppression, when we spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry and so, so whatever that is, it's not a political buzzword. It's not one particular political ideology any more than the other, but this is, excuse me, this is justice. This is righteousness as described in the Bible. So, just wanted us to not read over that. I just, I, I know it's poetic. I know it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful too. I don't want us to lose the the substance because for some reason, every time we talk about these things, uh, I get accused of political commentary. I, I don't, I don't know how else to interpret those eight verses of, of Isaiah. I, I don't know how else to interpret. I don't really care about political ideologies. I just, I'm hearing, I'm hearing food for the hungry. I'm hearing shelter for the wanderer. I'm hearing clothing for the naked. I'm hearing free the oppressed. I, 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 it's just the words of Isaiah. It's just the inspired words of Isaiah. I, I don't want to miss those things. I don't want, I've tried not to avoid all the judgment talk in Isaiah. We've been pretty good about reading all those chapters, haven't we, Brent? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You've read, the, you've read plenty of wrath and judgment stuff. So we, it's, we're not trying to avoid that, but let's not avoid this either. All right. So for all the people that want to write the email about, Whatever. Uh, this is just us looking at Isaiah. It's just, you can see I'm a little frustrated with the fact that you can't talk about half the stuff. Well, I'm, I'm reminded of our conversation with Andrew DeCourt and uh, his his whole entry into the Lord's Prayer was like, what if we actually take the words of Jesus seriously here? Yeah. 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 What, what if we actually take the words of the Bible seriously? What if we actually take the words of the Lord seriously? And yep. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and that's the challenge because we all take, you know, we all choose to take some words more seriously than others. That's true for all of us. True for me. Uh, it's true for Brent. Well, and I think it's fair to say, like, it is not my responsibility personally to feed all the hungry. Yes. To, right. like, 
this is a community call. This is not an individual call. Absolutely. So don't take take on the whole burden of this chapter. Yeah. Personally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My my uh, frustrated tone is not directed at anybody who's going to load themselves down with guilt. Um, my frustrated tone is to stop that email that you're starting to craft right now about my political <laughs> allegiance um, and and just wrestle with what what is the spirituality? What is the, the fasting that God has chosen? What is that? And I, I, I could not care less about political parties or ideologies, but are we doing these things? Because this is the stuff that God says, this is, this is the stuff that the new world of hope is built on. Us doing this, you, you, and, you and me, you and I, not, and, and not even governments and not even just you and I as people that follow God, hearing the cries as God hears the cries, responding to those cries, caring about that kind of righteousness, that kind of justice. That's that's how we build a world that God says, uh, that kind of world is where we're called repairer of broken, wall, uh, broken walls. You're right, remember, you, you might remember there were, there were broken walls at the beginning of Isaiah. But by the time we've gone through this whole journey, by the time we've experienced and tasted exile, we've learned how to become repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with, with dwellings. Uh, man, I'm glad I'm not reading today. I have a hard time talking. I'll <laughs> let you finish out the rest of this chapter. Uh, okay. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father, Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And I just find it interesting that in this chapter of righteousness and justice and true fasting, at the end, there's this whole section on Sabbath. I always felt like this end kind of felt awkward, like it didn't belong. Like, what is this? What is this Sabbath stuff doing here? And yet it's that same idea of, we saw it a little bit earlier. We saw it in the last chapter, the idea of trusting the story, the eunuch that keeps my Sabbath. There's something about Sabbath that reminds me of what God's story is and inspires me to be a part of that shalom, inspires me to be a part of that that justice, that repair, that restoration. Um, and, and I always have to let this paragraph serve as a reminder that I can turn my Sabbath into a self-indulgent exercise where it's just about what I please on my holy day. Um, and we talk about, you know my mantra, Brent, uh, Sabbath, we rest, we play, no work. God loves us. Um, and there's always a way where you can take that and twist it just a little, and all of a sudden it becomes a day about my own self-indulgence, uh, my own pleasure, my own delight. And Sabbath is never about my own delight. Sabbath is always about me partaking in and joining in God's delight, um, which was the name of that garden, Garden Eden, Eden, delight. So anyway, just a wonderful little thought. But before I keep pontificating anymore, we should probably jump over to the next chapter and go to 59. Okay. Uh, starting in verse three, for your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves 
with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. Yeah, so we just got done hearing about what true true righteousness and justice look like, what true fasting is, and what God really desires. And God says, so consider, please consider whether or not you're a part of that thing I just described. And I think that invitation would not be yanked out of context for us to do the same thing. Consider whether or not the lives that we live, the way we consume goods and people and resources and time, is it the kind of stuff that that God talked about in Isaiah 58, true fasting? Because in Isaiah 59, God says, it very clearly is not what you've been doing. It's not what you've been up to. And I don't know why I skipped the first two verses here. Brent, but do you have those? Here's what I find so interesting. It's going gonna, it's gonna to mirror, it's going to mimic what we just heard two chapters ago. Uh, and for some reason, I just decided to skip it. <laughs> okay. Uh, 59, back at the beginning. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. All right. So that's that intro to what we just read. The same idea that even though, even though the answer to the question, have, are you participating in the true fasting of Isaiah 58? Even though the answer might be, nope. And I am in rebellion and I am participating in sin. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Because, um, yeah, your, your sin gets in the way. It, it separates you from God. This is that verse, by the way, that we always love to talk about to make this theological. There's a couple of them in Isaiah. There's actually two or three references that talk about our sin separating us Um from God. And and it's always good to read it in its appropriate context, because I'm not sure that these proof texts here in these verses are making some grandiose theological statement about how sin separates us in our nature state from God. There's a, there's a much more poetic point being said here, which is that when you participate in this way of living, this sinful way, this rebellious way, separates you from the thing that God is doing in the world. It separates you and and God is his arm is not too short to save. His ear is not too dull to hear. He can repair that. And this passage is talking about not some future day. It's talking about there's an immediacy to this passage. Like Isaiah is saying it to God's people now. Like God can save you now. God can God can restore that relationship now. I'm not saying anything about saved in reference to Jesus or any of those things. I'm saying God is saying the the repaired relationship that you're looking for, God's willing. It's just what he said two chapters ago. I'm here. I'm willing. We can put this all back together right now. Um, forgiveness is yours if you want to trust the story, that kind of thing. But uh, let's go back to where we left off and keep on going. Okay, back down to verse 9. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice but find none. For deliverance but it is far away. Right, and that will give you the tone for Isaiah 59. I get something pretty interesting at the end of this chapter, Brent. 
at the very end of verse 21. Uh, it appears in most translations that I can find as, no, you guys tell me how to say this correctly. As prose? As prose, yeah. As prose. Okay, that's that's the reference I was looking for. Um, is that true in most of your translations? Do you have any footnotes in the NET, anything that gives us insight? I'm wondering if this is a, a redaction, like we talked about with LFU episodes ago. So is somebody wanting to put a break or weave something? Is there any kind of, do you see anything in notes anywhere? Nothing in the footnotes for NET. Um, it is in prose. Uh, yeah, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I, I can't. Um, I can't believe I didn't spend more time in altar on this episode, but I, I just didn't. Sometimes it's the kind of stuff he has insight into. So if anybody has their copy of Robert Alter, see if he's got anything there. But it feels to me, it looks to me, as a trans, and there must, there has to be a reason why the translators would do that. There's got to be some kind of reason. Yeah, and it's back to the poetry formatting for all of sixty. Absolutely, absolutely. So. So it it's doesn't a strange mean strange break. It is. And it doesn't mean that it's redaction. I just had that in my notes. Redaction question mark. It feels like perhaps there's a break there or two different things getting woven together. I think L might say, be careful about your hasty assumptions, young man. Um, but nevertheless, we keep moving beyond this potential redaction to uh, Isaiah 60. The glory of hope is what my notes say. We're just going to get some little sound bites here in the next few chapters of how does Isaiah bring these ideas together? How do you take um, God's vision of hope, what he's doing in the world, the invitation to join him, the rebellion and sin of his people? How do you start to pull all these things together and really have, uh, I mean, we're going to end up with a vision of a new heavens and a new earth. So, so how does Isaiah start to weave these things together? So the glory of hope, Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Pretty good. That's one of those. That's one of those beautiful rep passages. It's a rep passage for me, but it's well, it's a beautiful rep passage. The arise, shine, for the light has come. Just makes me want to break out in song again. But I did that last episode, so I better not do that again. <laughs> Uh, we can jump over and hear some of the same uh, next next chapter, some of the same stuff. First few verses of Isaiah 61. Ooh, this is another passage. We've heard this one a million times. Go ahead. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. All right, we've heard that passage before, most of us in connection to to Jesus. As you would hear this, Brent, what's your assumption First, when Isaiah first wrote this, what's the primary application? Who do you think this is probably, who is the me in this, 
in this passage originally. Uh, well, I would think Isaiah. Yes, I, I would probably agree with that. Um, could be another character, but I, I hear this in the voice of Isaiah. As the prophet, God's anointed me. I've come to proclaim. And all these things were true for Isaiah. They were true for Isaiah. They were also true and maybe even more true or maybe even more accurately, more perfectly, more beautifully displayed as Jesus says in Nazareth, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. I, I'm doing this work. I'm doing the same work that Isaiah was doing back in his day. So it's not that these words were meant only for Jesus. It's that these words were meant for Isaiah, but then Jesus comes and Jesus says, again, I know we've talked about this before. It's just good to see it because it's such an odd foreign idea to us that sometimes to go, okay, so this was true about Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. That's Isaiah. And then Jesus comes and he does it even better than Isaiah did it. Like he, like I, I think about like athletes breaking records. Like Isaiah came and he like broke the record on sovereign Lord is on me too. But then Jesus came and broke the record again. Like the unbeatable broken record of anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. This was true for Isaiah. It was even more true uh, for Jesus. And I kind of, I kind of see like a contrast to Isaiah 57, where here we have oaks of righteousness instead of the oaks of these wicked sacrifices. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I like that. I never would have caught that. I don't even know why I thought to pull that out in Isaiah 57. And then <laughs> here it is in oh, 61. There you go. Good work, Haver. Um, I like it. A little Bema Havara, two-person Havara here. That's why we do this. <laughs> I love it. Uh, okay, let's just keep on. Uh, now, we're going to go to Isaiah 62. And my notes, little subtitle I put in my notes said, not giving up. But my question is, this: uh, when, when we read this passage, is this in the voice of Isaiah or God or perhaps somebody else? And please don't say Jesus. <laughs> but who is this? Who is the voice of Isaiah 62? So you can read this, the first seven verses of 62, Brent, and I want us to think about that. And you can tell me what you think as you, what your take is as you read it. Okay. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Peulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. What do you think, Brent? Do you think that's Isaiah or do you think that's God? Who Who is not keeping silent? I mean, it felt like Isaiah at the beginning, but towards the end, I'm leaning more towards God speaking. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have an opinion. I don't know. Because I wonder, like the watchmen reference specifically, if that's actually referring to, oh, see, NAT has a footnote in verse six, after the word I, 
at the beginning of verse six, the NAT says, the speaker here is probably the prophet with no further explanation. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the verse where I would want to say that's probably God the way I would. Yeah. Like what, what authority that. does Isaiah have to sure. post watchmen on the walls? Like that seems like something the Lord does. And, you know, in previous chapters where they very clearly put quotation marks around it as the Lord speaking uh, and, and then refers to, you know, if that is God speaking, refers to himself in the third person. Yeah. Like, you know, yep. You who call on the Lord, like that could be God saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're God. It could be God saying that about himself. Um, It could be Isaiah posting watchmen because if watchmen are specifically prophets, uh, Isaiah could have a very, you know, he could have disciples. He could have prophetic colleagues that Isaiah is saying, listen, I, I've given you other people. This is not just me. There are other people that are bringing this message that you can you can listen to and you can hear. And there are other prophets watching. Um, could be. We don't know historically that's the case. Well, and that definitely fits the theory that the back half of Isaiah is written by the, you know, prophetic lineage of ooh, Isaiah. Ooh, I like that too. Boy, that's good. Me and Brent's so on a roll today. If, I like that. If the watchmen are prophets and yep. th- that would make this fit well with Isaiah speaking here saying, I have posted watchmen. I have raised up disciples. Yeah, absolutely. So the theme for me here is that these, whether it's God or whether it's the prophet, whoever it is that, and it really, it really does fit both. And it really doesn't matter because of that idea of pathos that we talk about. We talked about at the very beginning of this, of this series, because it really is this joined union, this solidarity with God that the prophet is, is experiencing and speaking from. But the idea here is that God and the prophet, they are not giving up on his people. They are not going to remain silent. They're not just saying, hey, this is your offer, take it or leave it, but I'm just going to let you choose. And then I'm, nope, they are not keeping silent. They will not remain quiet. They've posted watchmen. That's the theme here. Go ahead and give us a little chunk of Isaiah 63. Okay, starting in verse seven, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord. Kindnesses, kindnesses, many kindnesses, many, more than one, plural. (laughs) I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he was too distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. All right. So there we just, and I put this in the same category. This is, this is a, this is the prophet. This is God. However you want to phrase that, not giving up on his people. The prophet here is going to keep telling of the kindnesses of God. What are you going to have to do if you're not going to give up on your people? You got to keep this stuff in front in front of us. We got to keep this stuff. Um, we have to remember. Uh, it has to be a truth telling exercise. We have to tell the truth about who God was and what God has done and who God has been, so that we can be the people that we're supposed to be. Um, I feel like jumping over to Isaiah 64. Uh, yeah. Before that, though, fun note on on that phrase, uh, Holy Spirit. It only appears here in Isaiah and then in Psalm 51. <laughs> I wondered. I, I thought that is such a unique Old Testament usage. I was aware of Psalm 51 and not anything else. So there you go. I was aware of both of them, apparently. That's it. Yeah. 
That is it. Okay, 64 from the top. And, and a footnote here at the beginning of this chapter saying that uh, the numbering is conflicting between some Hebrew texts and how we number it today. So again, with the fuzzy transitions between these chapters. There you go. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. All right. So there is this, again, this dance, this back and forth of not giving up on God's people, of remembering all the things that God has done for us, but also acknowledging golly, have we screwed this up? And the prophet saying, I wish that you would rent, tear open the heavens uh, and come down. I wish that you would do something. I wish that, um, cause we, cause we are, we are screwed up. We are sinful. And yet, yet going to be the next word in our passage, the very next verse, because that's not the end of the conversation though. The writer here is going to do something that I feel like is significant. I, I did a sermon on this once, Brent. I don't know if you could find it anymore and could link it on shame, conviction. I think we've linked it before, but we talked about guilt and shame and conviction um, right before I left Moscow. It's one of the last sermons I preached there. And um, we used this chapter of Isaiah to talk about guilt and shame and conviction because the author here in Isaiah clearly sees their guilt. They, they are guilty. They have all their righteous acts are like filthy rags. We've all sinned and gone away. There's there's no one who calls on your name. This is probably somewhat hyperbolic, but there's real guilt there that's not being dodged. And yet the prophet is going to, in this next section we're going to hear, he's going to stay away from shame. He's not going to internalize or let God's people internalize that as this is your core identity. You are guilty. You are not guilt, right? You 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 have done sinful things. Uh, you are not sin. Your identity is not the sin. You are guilty of participating in sin. Those are those are two different things. Um, one says I have. I'm a. One says I have lied. The other says I am a liar. And that there's a distinction to be made there between I have lied. And I am a liar. One has internalized that as its identity. So look at this next section here in verse 8 and the rest of this chapter and watch what the watch what the prophet does here. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our ancestors praised you, has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. 
After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Okay, so the prophet here like squarely remembers and reminds God's people of their identity. So we we are guilty. We we have sinned, and yet we are God's children. You are Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter. We are there's an identity statement there. Um and so an invitation to we we want to live out a conviction. So God save us. God remember, do not remember our sins forever. Look on us, forgive us. Um that relationship between guilt and shame and conviction is something that I see in that chapter, but Depending if you got anything else, I can jump over to chapter 65. 65. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I. Send me. No. (laughs) I was like, wow. What translation are you reading from? Uh, My mind just went into another rut. (laughs) Oh, man. <laughs> this is why you shouldn't read scripture by by yourself, because <laughs> right. if you do, you might be reading something entirely different yeah, than what's there. That's right. Oh, man, this is so funny. This is like I'm seeing my my son in his reading lessons where like I point at a word and he says something just entirely different. I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, OK, Whew, back back on track. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. I'm pursuing my imagination, apparently. At least I, at least I was in the same book of the Bible. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's true. <laughs> a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. See, it stands written before me. I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps. Both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills. I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. All right. So that was a pretty rough seven verses. That was like seven verses of pretty thick judgment. And yet it's going to be immediately followed by a pretty big, like it doesn't say this in the, like a butt statement here. Like God says that that's, but that's not the end of the story. Like that's, that's a pretty good assessment of where we're at. And yet Go ahead, verse 8. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes, and people say, don't destroy it, there is still a blessing in it. So will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Accor a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. All right. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big little section passage to come after everything that he just said. Like there's still, but there's still some juice in the cluster of grapes. There's still a blessing in it. What a great little verse right there. A great little phrase. Don't destroy it. There is still a blessing in it. 
And God says, there's still, there's still something here in my people. They're not all lost. There's something to be redeemed. Let's finish this thing out. We got two more. Let's do a little passage out of 65 and look at some stuff in the final chapter and get out of here. Okay, 65 now jumping down to 17. Uh, one of those rut passages for me. Used to this one. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. It's a pretty good, big, prophetic, beautiful picture of what Olam Haba, the age to come, a new heavens and a new earth. And that, remember that Olam Haba helps us remind ourselves this isn't, they don't see this like mechanically, very literal, like this is literally what's going to happen in the future. It's a picture of what the age to come will be like, the quality of what it will look like, the quality of the experience, the quality of the world, the quality of the shalom, the experience shalom of God's age to come. And that's what the prophet really is describing here. But we got one more uh, one more chapter. Let's look at the first few verses here. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person, and whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns, I, I don't know what some of this means, but I know that's not good, and whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and they delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. All right, I've read this passage, and I've wondered if, uh, I, I feel like you see this in Isaiah. Like, Isaiah has a pretty harsh, potentially even an outright condemnation of what you might call the the cultists. Uh, scholars just talk about the the cult, the the priestly office, like the the temple system, the temple cult. Um, 
And it could be that Isaiah has just a, a really, a, just an outright condemnation. Maybe even that's where Jesus, Isaiah is one of his favorite prophets to quote. Maybe that's where Jesus gets his condemnation of the temple and the temple's not going to stand and the temple's not going to to be in operation and it's coming to an end. And we also see Jesus respecting the temple. Um, I can't imagine that Isaiah, I don't know. I don't know where Isaiah, is this an outright condemnation? Is Isaiah simply saying, uh, he's just offering a counter narrative to like, God needs us to be people of justice. If you think this is just about offering sacrifices, going through the motion, going through the motions, appearing at your church services, I think of the very first chapter of Isaiah, all your worship assemblies, they just make me sick and they make me want to vomit. Like if maybe that's the, maybe Isaiah's just offering a counter tone. I think some people look at this and say, I don't think he's condemning temp, like, like Judean temple sacrifice. I think he's condemning pagan idolatrous sacrifice. I don't see that explicitly in this text. Um, we've heard Isaiah before talk very disparagingly about putting your trust in that sacrificial system, that cult, that priest cult. I don't mean cult in a negative way. I know Christians hear the word cult and we have like this immediate reaction. I just mean cult in the technical academic sense. There is a, there's a, a liturgical, structure and process and reality. That's the cult. Same way we talked about the cultic law back yes. in, I believe it was Galatians where that first came up. Same reference, same, same kind of reference. So, so I don't know. I don't know how, how far you want to take that, but I just throw it out there. Cause I, I definitely hear that um, potentially when I, when I read Isaiah saying, uh, cause he talks about his heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? I mean, that appears to be kind of a passive backhanded statement at, I mean, like, what place does the temple really have? Um, that might be a, a bridge way too far, I'm sure, even from a lot of Orthodox Jewish perspectives as well. I'm not saying that's where I land. Uh, it just sounds like Isaiah has some harsh critique for the world of the priestly cult in his day. Let's jump down, Brent. Let's, let's go to verse 12. For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. I feel like I've never heard that word before. I was thinking said, that same thing, dandled. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> what, is, uh, what does NET say? They say, you will play on her knees. Okay. okay, all right. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. I had never really thought about this being the remez to... I, I talked in session three about Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to her, how I long to gather you as a chick gathers her hands and as a hen gathers her chick under her wings and to comfort you, but you would not have it. And I talked about how that's a cultural remez to a, the play by um, Euripides, Trojan women. Um, but I never, I never necessarily saw the remez that I feel like could be right here, a nursing Mother dandling her children on her knees and comforting them over Jerusalem. Very interesting. But give us the next few verses and we'll uh, we'll give some concluding thoughts to this. Dandle seems like a read dent kind of word. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, verse 14. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many 
will be those slain by the Lord. So we finally see one last time this connection between judgment, vengeance, and and hope. And it's hard for us to relate to that because we're always the people with the sociopolitical power, at least for all of my Western American podcast listeners. It's so hard for us to relate to what it means to be the sociopolitical oppressed, um, to always be on the underside, to never have that sociopolitical power. And that is the audience of Isaiah. And so vengeance and judgment is tied to hope. Like our hope lies in the fact that that these the powerful will be judged and held accountable. And you see that there in those closing verses. But Brent, this is going to be one of my longest episodes if we don't get out of here pretty soon. Let's give some closing thoughts to this and and uh, and see how we can wrap this up well. Okay, I'll try to make this brief, but I did notice as I was looking at the Bible Project um, overview uh, photo poster thing. Oh, uh, yes. Very much a uh, chiastic-looking structure the way they laid it out from 56 through 66. Okay. So here's their outline. They have 56A and 66B are all nations invited to join God's covenant family. Okay. Okay. Then inside of that, we have 56B through 58 and then 65 through 66A, a contrast between the wicked and the servants. Then we have 59 and then 63 and 64 are prayers of repentance. And then the center portion is 60 through 62 and it is the servant announces God's kingdom. So our um, our favorite little algorithmic chiasm tool um, that we first talked about when we did the Job episode. Yes. That points to Isaiah 62 being the center of okay. this portion. Yep. But what I was noticing was like if I just take 60 through 62, like 61 is where I went to look and I started seeing some things in there. Uh, remember earlier when I pointed out sovereign Lord? Yes. So that is used in Isaiah 34 times, but there's only three places in this portion of Isaiah, this 56 through 66. So we see it in, and I noticed it because it's twice in Isaiah 61. It's at the very beginning okay. and the very end of the chapter. Okay. And so it's also in 56 and then in 65. Okay. So I don't know how much there is to that. Um, but it's interesting because sure there's a lot of Lord, there's a lot of God, yep. but the sovereign Lord phrase only appears a few times and I feel like it kind of points us to that. Then within that chapter, we also have uh, verse three that talks about uh, beauty instead of ashes, joy instead of mourning, praise instead of despair. And then down in verse seven, we have a double portion instead of shame. We have rejoicing instead of disgrace. So all this like instead of stuff. Yep. So that brings us to the center being verses four through six. And if this idea of this, uh, the Bible project idea of like the servant announces God's kingdom, like this is the essence of God's kingdom in the center of 61, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Good golly. So that is my proposal. That is a pretty darn good proposal, Brent Billings. 
Um, and sounds like good homework for our listeners and their discussion groups. You can you can find a link to that. I know the Bible Project puts those posters on their website. You can find a link and put that in the show notes, right? Yep. I'll link to their whole Isaiah page. Okay. I love it. And then, um, uh, you know, we were sent by a listener um, an email from John Kelly, who sent an email that uh, was talking about um, Foreman at Aleph Beta. They have a they have a playlist, uh, a whole teaching series on Isaiah. Um, he said this: um, uh, the series explains in an amazing way who the sign of Emmanuel is about, and for that matter, explains the whole point of the first thirty nine chapters of Isaiah. So that would be first Isaiah, especially the bit at the end. It's Rabbi Foreman at his best. It's also supported by the Babylonian Talmud commentary as well. Um, goes on to say, let's see here. Um, there is a reason Isaiah meets King Ahab there to give him this sign and suggest then, uh, regarding, look at the clues that Isaiah gives to describe the identity of the person as a sign of Emmanuel makes for amazing remez when you get to the new Testament and it's mentions of Isaiah seven blew me away. Best wishes. So that playlist is King Hiskiah. The almost Messiah. I have always appreciated Foreman's words, like his play on words. I just always <laughs> have loved it. King Hezekiah, the almost Messiah, uh, is the playlist there. And I'll have Brent put a link. You're going to need a membership to actually see the whole series and to access it. But I know a lot of our listeners are members of Aleph Beta. And so if you do have that membership, you can you can find that playlist. But that was super good. And then, Brent, you always ask me for, uh, you asked me halfway through when we were in between 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah parts yeah. for a, a review. So I thought we should do that. Do you think we should? Yes, but also I'll just point out on the Alpha Beta thing, they have offered us a discount code. So if someone is interested in becoming a member, if they're not already, uh, they, they do have a way to save a little bit of money on that. So Excellent. On to the review then. Yes, on to the review. Here's how I would probably split this and describe this review of Isaiah to close us out. So I would look at Isaiah and I would split it up into those same two parts that we had before. Um, I had first part being like as a, as a father disciplines his son. So I would say the first part is, so we'll go meta level and then we'll break this down. So the, there's two parts, the father's discipline and then what it means to partner with dad. That would be Isaiah, first Isaiah and second Isaiah. The first Isaiah is father's disciplines, as a father disciplines his sons. And then the second part is partnering with, with dad. So I, I just recently, uh, my son, I won't give too many details, had was recently in one of those seasons of being disciplined by dad. And I, I see so vividly this review for me, and maybe this is coming out from my own biographical experience, and it's probably tainting my object objectivity, but I see this experience of Isaiah in my own experience with my son, because there was a time of discipline. Um, and, and that's what, that's what we experienced. So the first part of, of, of Isaiah would be the father's discipline. It starts off with a section about your mess. So I would say the first part is your mess. Uh, the dad says, trust the story. Uh, I'll save you. Trust the story. God will save you. That'd be the second part. Um, third part, I would say, well, that didn't work. <laughs> That's my really technical <laughs> theological language. 
And then that leads to consequences. So the first part of Isaiah is my question. Is that the Lord speaking or is that Isaiah? <laughs> yeah, sure. Right. That's a, that's a good question. Um, so you have, you have God's discipline and that's the process. There's this acknowledgement that you are in a mess and an invitation to trust. But when you don't trust, there's consequences. So that's God's discipline. That's the first part. But then the second part is once you've dealt with the consequences, there's the partnering with dad to build a better world. And so that first part is suffering is the way to restoration. And what I liked about thinking about it in terms of my son is it really, it really sucked for my son to be grounded. He did not like to be grounded. Um, was not a fun season for him. And yet uh, we all know my son probably isn't convinced of this right now, but his, even his adolescent wisdom knows better. Like we will all be better because of the things that we experience when, when discipline is healthy and not driven by retribution and anger and just outright punishment. But when it's really good discipline, like suffering is going to produce suffering is the way to restoration. I see that as the first part of second Isaiah. The second part of second Isaiah is perseverance. Perseverance produces the fruit. So my son had to hang with that period of being grounded. He learned his lesson early, right? Like he learned his lesson early in the process. He learned like, oh, yep, consequences, got it, screwed up, got it. Okay, I've learned my lesson. It's time to get out, right? Nope, that's not how consequence. So perseverance, you got to persevere. You got to persevere through this. And then on the other side, there's this chance to build a better world, to learn new lessons, to become better people, to not repeat past mistakes. And that's the saying yes to building a new world. So I think that would be my review of there's the father's discipline. You're a mess. Trust the story. God will save you. Well, that didn't work. Consequences, which leads to the second part, partnering with dad. Suffering is the way to restoration. Perseverance produces fruit. Saying yes to building a new world with dad. So that that's the way I would review it. Brent, I don't know if you have anything to add or reject or push back on, but that's my review. You asked, I delivered. I just needed some time to work on it. I, I like seeing the evolution of the review because that was that was what we did in class. We got to see the review yeah, change from yeah. day to day, year to year. Yeah. It's great. You give me five more years, that'll it'll get refined even more. Yep. Well, as uh <laughs> I was looking here at our at our stats and I the longest episode where it's just you and me on the episode, I think was about top 34. And I'm pretty sure this one's going to bump us up to the top 10, Marty. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Well, at least we're not. We can't be high. We're not in the top five. No, that has no. to be owned by Josh and the others. Yeah. The others. The top five are Josh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good enough. I think it's time for you to get that outro done so that we don't climb high in the list indeed it's been fun going through isaiah we do have a handful of show notes uh for this episode in particular some extra resources if you want to you know consider some of these ideas and you know in the greater context of isaiah go back and look at you know when we talked about the a dry tree or talk about the prophetic table some of those things and uh, of course the bible project and and foreman lots more stuff to dig into in Isaiah and of course you know we we've put many hours into it and many more years yet to come with this um, especially with how much Jesus uses Isaiah like that's just 
there's no end to the study. So go to baymodelsafeship.com, check out the notes, get in a group, um, find events on the website as well. All that is there. So thanks for joining us on the Baymod Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.